perhaps. Um, last week, Michael and I tried to make the case pretty strongly that um, some of the answer, some of the antidote to the situation we're in is to be the church. And, and we tried to say that when we fail to be the church, that's when we get some of the problems, or at least that's when we tend to focus on some of our problems. And tonight we want to revisit that because that seems very simple, and in some ways it is, be the church. But when we make that a slogan, as if it would happen on its own, we're in danger. It takes a great deal of work to be the church. It takes a great deal of intentionality to be the church. It's not as if you could say to musicians, just go play good music, or to sports teams, just go play good basketball or football. They have to work into that. And so when we say be the church, it's not simply something that we can aspire to do without working at it, without being very intentional, without planning. It takes a lot to do that simple-sounding thing. So tonight, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means to keep those bigger goals in mind, a little bit of appraisal. Um, we've talked a lot about where we are, but the thing about knowing where you are is then reflecting on where you want to go and how do you get there? What does the path look like there? And we're going to talk about, begin to talk about the first of two sessions, probably more so of this next week, but we're going to begin to talk about what does it look like to be the church in the new place we live? If this isn't the world of the past, what does it look like? How does it look differently to be the church in the here and now. And um, Michael doesn't struggle with this too much. We, we, mostly me, are going to try not to be salty, but we, mostly, well, we were both. We had a Presbytery meeting yesterday. So my church frustration I is I love sitting. that they know what that means already. <laughs> you just said that, and they were like, and they went across the room. <laughs> the communal awareness. My my church tolerance is is here, and my church frustration is is here. So I'm trying not to point that at you because you don't deserve any of it. But just know that if if you hear some of it, that's where it's coming from. <laughs> so that we that said in jest, I I do think that no, there, it isn't. <laughs> that wasn't said in jest, but no. if it was, we, we, we turn our attention here to, to ask a little bit tonight of what does it look like when, when the situation around you has changed to then reflect upon what strategies and goals do we want to or, or will we need to rely upon in the future? And I think maybe the best way to, to lay out the, the path for tonight's conversation is to look backward. So uh, one of the, the, the leaders in our presbytery, uh, his name is Ian, and he, he functions in uh, as a kind of pastor to the pastors. He's kind of a person who tries to help the leadership. And uh, Clint was talking to him, and uh, I was listening in. And Ian mentioned this book called Canoeing the Mountains. And in this, this has been a relatively recent, I think five or six years-ish uh, time. The author of this book is a former Presbyterian pastor. He, he pastored in a relatively 
affluent uh, California church, and then he did well there. And then now he's a professor at Fuller Seminary. And as a reflection of his time in ministry and now his new position where he's trying to resource churches, he wrote this book called Canoeing the Mountains, and, and it kind of became popular amongst church leadership groups, and it spread pretty quickly as things, um, as quickly as things go in the church. And so in this book, he makes this case. He says, Lewis and Clark were tasked with the, the job of surveying the Louisiana Purchase, right? And that they uh, set out to do that task with the belief that they would be able to essentially navigate water the entire way to the ocean. They, they thought they would get in canoes and they would paddle that path all the way west. And that plan worked all the way up until they hit the mountains and realized there was no longer a water path to keep going out to the Pacific Ocean. At which point, uh, a decision came in front, uh, came before them. The decision was ultimately, will we proceed and no longer be canoe people, or will we stop and go home? And the moment that they decided that they would continue on to the Pacific was the moment in which they decided that they would now be mountain climbers and not canoe paddlers. And everything changed at that moment. They still needed the same. They needed food. They needed clothing. They, they needed to uh, continue to move forward their supplies, but they had to radically transform the way that they thought about it. That's Michael's five cent summary of the book. You should read the book. It's a lot better than that. But the short version is at that moment, they make this decision in light of the change of their circumstance that they're going to address their circumstances differently. And so they, they learn to use horses and they learn to uh, find paths through the mountain that they otherwise wouldn't be able to navigate. And the question that the author of this book raises is what does it look like for congregations to stand before the choice of, are we canoe people or mountain people? And if we choose to be mountain people, what will we carry with us? What, what things will we need to do to be successful if we're going to make it on the other side of the mountains? And he proceeds to offer some ideas of what that might look like, all which are summarized under this, this label, uh, adaptive leadership, which essentially means that at the end of the day, Leadership is always being willing to account for what you have and not what you wish you had. <laughs> In other words, you're willing to be flexible and to encourage the whole team to be flexible because if not, the decision is to go back the direction you came. Yeah, and essentially, I, I think the case that he makes in the book is that the genius of Lewis and Clark's leadership was to recognize when what they knew wasn't going to help them much anymore. And the very difficult decision to leave your canoe behind when you're a canoe expert because carrying a canoe through the mountains isn't particularly helpful. And for them to recognize that and be willing to abandon what they had done and what they knew and what they were good at and embark on a journey that was going to demand new things is in some ways the pivotal moment of their decision, of their journey, and their leadership. And, the, and they thought seriously about turning around in fairness, they also did not realize what they were getting themselves into, but that's part of the trip. So as, as he writes under this heading of adaptive leadership, um, that matters. But I think the, uh, the flip side of that 
is what does it mean to be an adaptive congregation? Yes, leaders have to know, pastors have to have some of those skills, but it doesn't work if congregations don't embrace the same struggles, the same changes. So how do churches navigate new wilderness, new landscape, stay focused on the right things? How do congregations get to the point where they can say, what we used to do, we were really good at, but it doesn't seem to be working anymore. We need to try something else. And how do we sort of step out of our canoes to use that metaphor? And that is a very, very difficult thing to do. That's hard for individuals. It is very hard for groups. It, it is not something that groups historically do very well. And so how do, how do we do that? How do we stay focused on the right things? I worked with um, the pastor I worked with in Texas, Steve. I've mentioned him many, many times. He had this phrase that he would say. He said, I feel like right now we're majoring on minors. And I, th his words have always stuck with me because, again, Michael and I have interactions sometimes with, with different congregations, different people. And I am surprised when you are subjected to a group of pastors for the day, how many of the conversations are, are frustrations and experiences and, oh, we have this happening, we're having this happening. And, and you say, what's it about? And they say, something that doesn't matter at all. I, I am surprised how much of church life, if we're not careful, gets consumed with things that aren't ultimately very important. I, th I think I've showed you all this before, but uh, at one point a pastor gave me a business card, and I keep it and pull it out sometimes in meetings. It's a picture of Jesus, and I think he's laughing, but the words, I don't know if you'll be able to see this, it says, I don't think this matters to Jesus. So sometimes in the middle of a meeting, I will just sneak a peek at my billfold and remind myself, I don't think this matters to Jesus. And it's scary how many times that that might apply. Um, I have wondered many times in ministry why so much of the church's work is connected to things that really aren't the most important things, and why so much of our time is taken up with things that don't really affect change. Um, that is a good recipe to stay stuck in your canoe. And, and I'm not, uh, I, my frustrations are largely not in this place. I want to be clear about that. My frustrations are largely with the church in general. And we, we devote a lot of time and effort to things that I think ultimately would be very hard to classify as kingdom things. And they would be very hard to put under that heading of being the church. And so we want to think together about some of the markers we think we navigate by as we try to be adaptive congregations. I think to flesh that out a little bit, uh, we were talking in Sunday school this morning about one of Jesus's parables, and it, it seems to me that it's worth turning to Jesus's parables at this point in the conversation, because you remember uh, the story that Jesus has about uh, the rich man and uh, the idea that all of his possessions in one night can be plundered. And then Jesus says, you know, uh, that you should invest not where 
uh, moth and rust can destroy, but in the eternal storehouse of heaven, right? And, and we think of that as a personal command, that, that we should not overinvest our lives in the stuff of our lives. But that is equally applicable, if not more, in churches, where the temptation is that it's the stuff that we hang on the wall, or it's the stuff that we donate that has a, a personal meaning, which is meaningful and, and valuable, but, but we begin to entrust that to something beyond the, just the, the church itself. We invest meaning in the thing rather than in the community. And when we do that, I, I think there is danger that we become people over-connected to our stuff and not connected to the one who calls us in his name and who that stuff was supposed to serve. And, you know, I think that that is a thing that this congregation navigates really pretty well. Uh, I'll tell you, I've got friends who send me pictures of the post-it notes that get put on drawers and cabinets in the church. And you can almost tell, you can, like a detective, you can almost read the story as it goes. It started as a misunderstanding, but then it got a little salty, and then it was just all-out war over the silverware. Right? You, you know, uh, there was one picture where the silverware cabinet was locked with a padlock. I love following where that's, how that story got there. But that's the temptation, is to think that the stuff in that drawer was the determinative value of the congregation. And, and that's not to be convicting because that happens to all of us. We, values are easy to misplace, but I think in a group, it, is, it happens very quickly that we stop telling the story of grace and forgiveness, repentance, conversion, and change, and we start talking about, can you believe that Sister Betsy locked the silverware? And then that becomes the next leadership meeting. And I wish I could tell you that it doesn't become the next leadership meeting, but the next agenda on the next church that I have a meeting, not this one, actually has an issue like that on the agenda. And, and so there's a way in which you, you try as a congregation to help one another remember this is important, but it's not the most important. And, and that's an invaluable practice for a congregation. So... What are the tools we have to to navigate? Whatever, whatever it is that the church sets itself to do, it needs to be guided by its theology, its reading of scripture, its life of prayer, and its fellowship, its communal health. And whether we're canoeing, whether we're hiking, whether we're doing a project together or an outreach together, these are the things that we have to do. I had a very interesting conversation yesterday with Ian, who Michael mentioned. Um, a lot of Ian's job is to work with churches who are struggling. And in the three presbyteries that he serves, I think there are about a dozen churches that are in the process of closing or considering closing. And so Ian has to go in and have these meetings when churches aren't doing well and begin to think with them about where they are and where it would take what it would take to maybe find a new path and i i told him I, you know i can't i can't imagine your job but having done that job i i asked him is there a is there a thing that you see when when you're in one of those conversations with a congregation and times are tough and they're not doing very well is there a thing you hear that you know oh this isn't likely to end well. That that they're probably going to 
close the door and sell the building and wrap it up. I said, is there, is there anything consistent? And he said, absolutely. I know I'm in trouble in those conversations when they don't mention Jesus and they don't mention other people. When they talk about themselves, when they talk about their buildings, their budgets, their struggles, I know they are going to have a very hard time making it. And he didn't use these words, but in in this presentation previously, Michael and I used these words. The church has to resist the temptation to substitute the things of Jesus for Jesus himself. In other words, to have a religion instead of a faith. You may know this, the word religion in Latin means to bind. And the intent of that word was to be bound to Christ. But the practice of that word is to sort of be tied up. Religion binds us and faith frees us. Now, that's an oversimplification for our purposes, but there is truth to that. When we substitute Jesus' things for Jesus himself, we are going to have a very hard time. And and as Ian said those words, I I thought of those many conversations I've been in with people in those situations, and, and I think that is the death bell for a church. I think when they begin to look inward and they fail to look outward, there's, there's trouble ahead. They're going to struggle. And as I consider the experience in this place of rich mission and connections with and partnerships with people throughout the world and in the community and projects and etc., I, I really think that is the way forward to invest time and energy in things that have... A, um, a kingdom aspect, a kingdom implication. Now, yes, light bills and furnaces, of course, yes, that stuff all matters. But if it matters too much and the other stuff matters too little, a church finds themselves in a bad place. And I, th- I thought it was fascinating that Ian so quickly could identify a trait or a phrase or a situation that for him is consistently bad. I I thought that was telling. What's striking about this is it is difficult to find the nuance here because when we gave this presentation to the the Presbytery a few months back, um, we were talking in this section uh, about how congregations need to be looking outside their walls. And one of the ways that they need to do this, they need to try to communicate with people outside their walls. And so I made this comment which I think in hindsight I still stand behind, but I, I said that the church should not rely upon marketing. The church should rely upon our, our skill set and tool set of evangelism, that of, of good news sharing, that, that, that should come effortlessly for, from who we are. And there's a guy who came up after me just blazing upset, told me I insulted every marketer that had ever lived, and that marketing wasn't a bad thing, and I assured him that I didn't think marketing was a bad thing, and I meant no disparagement to an entire industry. Um, But it struck me his response to it, because you, you know that First Pres 
pumps out more content outside our walls than any Presbyterian church I know. I, I mean, we, we, we send stuff out all the time, but we're not good marketers, if you understand what I mean by that. It's not glitzy or glamoury. or we're, we're not out uh, handing out free ice cream sandwiches if you come to church. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we, could, we could get more markety if we wanted, but that's not the point. And I, I think the, the nuance in that is rather simple, is that a congregation dedicated to being church, and let's be clear about what that means, studying scripture, praying, caring for one another, and then finding in that energy the inspiration to go out and invite other people and say, hey, I think you might be blessed by studying scripture and prayer and fellowship and serving one another. That, that, that itself is that's what we mean by evangelism. That's what we mean by sharing the good news. And it's not what we consider those traditional tools of marketing. Uh, here I open the, 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 please, if you feel about that, just send me an email. Uh, you, if you feel like I, but do you understand the point? That, that there, there's, there's a there kind of practice that says, we want to do whatever it takes to get you to come here. And another that says, we want to make a kind of community that is itself irresistible and that invites people into it. And it's not that you don't do both, but there is one place you should start. And that's the case I want to make. While we were in Texas, there was a church in Dallas, not a Presbyterian church, but they made the news. You all remember when the, um, they looked like quarters, but they were the little gold dollars. Remember Sacagawea? Yeah. Speaking of, uh, Lewis and Clark, I, that wasn't on purpose to connect those things, but, there, there was a, a newspaper article about a congregation in Dallas that had done a, a campaign, maybe call it marketing, I don't know. But the short of it was, if you came to visit the church, they gave you one of those dollars. You, you could come and, I don't, they went and got, I don't know how very many of them. And, I, I don't, the paper was kind to them, creative, okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fine. I, good for, let's try things, see what works. But, and I, I don't want to sound, yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm going to sound, so just keep that in mind. We, when we gather, we gather before the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. And we're going to give a dollar? If you, that's what we can come up with? Friends, that's not good enough. That, that's not witness. That, that's marketing. That, that's not a community being attractive because it's living the life of faith. That's a gimmick. And yeah, gimmicks are fun. They, I mean, they're, they're okay. And I'm not knocking that church. I don't know that church. They probably, it was probably awesome. But I, the, the problem is then somebody else hears that and they think, well, let's make it $2. And then you've got a bidding war for the idea that that's why people come to church because there's something in it for them because they get something out of it. And it's an unfortunate reality that that has dominated our conversations about how do we move forward and what does it look like to make progress now. And 
I don't know if you all feel the fatigue of it or, or not. Maybe, maybe you don't. But one of the things, and, and again, mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry for this language. Michael and I, you know, I spent the day yesterday with a bunch of people who feel stuck in canoes and won't get out of them. And I'm grateful to come to a place where if the canoe works, let's use it. And if it doesn't work, let's, let's put it over in the grass and see what might work. I, that's the only way that the church has a chance of surviving this sort of new landscape that we're in. And I just don't, we're not, we're not going to get there with, um, Sacagawea dollars and fancy ads in the paper. Uh, it, it's going to be the church being the church, and it's going to be messy. Um, it's not clean. It's not easy. Talk to any organization that is trying to do new things and chart a new path, and they're going to tell you, yeah, we, we probably fail more than we succeed, but failing forward is okay. Um, perfect. The idea of perfect is sometimes the enemy of good. And if we can, if we can do that, if we can fail forward and be honest in situations that, hey, we tried that and it didn't work. I'm always struck when I have larger, again, larger conversations. What if this happens? What if that happens? And then the paralysis that if causes in, in congregations that are scared to try anything in case it doesn't work. And, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I understand. I know failure isn't fun, and those are difficult moments, but they're the moments that you have to take. And so, um, yeah, we, we are in a strange time. I don't want to make this heavier than it needs to be. Um, I, I find that places like First Press are unfortunately rare I, I wish other pastors could have this experience I, I don't want to trade with them um, but this this idea of we used to do this really well so we'll just keep doing it like well you got you dragging a canoe up a mountain yeah well we're canoe people well <laughs> you're not in you're not in canoe territory well, but we like canoes, so we're just going to sit here in it in this field. Okay, let's do that. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's a very interesting time for churches to to take this challenge of being the church seriously and to, to begin to explore what does that mean, what has it meant, and what does it mean now? What what does it mean for us? What does it mean for the people around us? And the good news in that is that being the church has always been hard, but sometimes when it's been the hardest is when church has done the best. Yeah, the thing that I think it's worth remembering is that the if you're going to make a, a chart of church growth over time, you realize that the point of the church's fastest accelerated growth in all of history happened during the first 200 years when the church was most systemically oppressed, I mean, sought out 
and persecuted. And this is going to make you wonder about me as a parent. And that's fair. But Olivia and I love watching documentaries. And so we just watched a documentary about the gladiatorial games. I know, not everyone does that with their eight-year-old. But Olivia and I, we're nerds. So we watched this documentary. And I, poor Clint has already heard this because it was a really good documentary. But the thing that struck me in it, which my eight-year-old didn't get, because, you know, anyways. But the thing that struck me about it was the games were, of course, entertainment. But what, what I didn't know was every time Rome went and sacked a city, you know, their military was, was feared. It, it, they did not have an equal at the height of the Roman Empire. They would take a city, and the first thing that they would do would be to build an arena. I didn't know that. And the reason why they built an arena for games is because the definition of being Roman happened when the gladiators fought. That's how they taught the people they conquered to be Roman. This is what it means to be Roman. Now, the documentary didn't insert this, but if you know your church history, you know the people who were put in those coliseums? Or the Christians. And the witness that they gave in giving of their life, women, children, that witness was so compelling that it spurred a movement that had never been seen before in its day, which led to the birth of the church and later the complete conversion of the Roman Empire, both with its ups and downs. And there were a lot of all of that. But the point I want to make is we sometimes forget that martyr the word means witness. And yes, with all of the conversation we've had, and, and there's always a danger of over-talking about it, but all the conversation we've had about the context changing and about how culture does have a what, what sure feels like a more adversarial relationship to church and religion and faith, if that's the case, then we're getting even closer to the conditions upon which the early church thrived. And so the question that I think lingers in a congregation, and, and when I think of this conversation that we're having here, it, it makes me wonder, will the leaders of this church in 10, 15, 20 years, could they tune back into this recording and find something valuable there? I don't know. I, for me, it's an interesting thought experiment. Are, is what we're talking about going to lead to the creation of tools and thought and, and communal practices that will help us to be Christians in the future? And will they help us respond to the world that is surely different? And I think the mistake we make is thinking that if it gets harder for Christians outside these walls, that that's bad for the church. It might be, that it might be bad for some churches, but it also might be the exact right context per our history for the church's witness to be strong. And I hope that we lean into that promise. It's actually an opportunity if we're willing and able to, to live into the struggle of it. Yeah, and the counterintuitive part of that, I think, is if you ask people, hey, it looks like hard times are coming for the church, what churches are going to make it? It's not going to be the biggest. It's not going to be the flashiest. It's not going to be the newest. It's going to be the churches that kept their focus in the right place. It's going to be the churches that remained faithful, that didn't 
disintegrate over things that didn't really matter in the big picture and that kept their eyes on Christ as they navigated a new way forward in new times. And I, I think that's the frustrating um, moment of being where we are is to watch the domino of, of church after church that doesn't make it. And that's not a judgment on those places. They're, they're good people. But we're coming into a moment where it, it takes more than it has in the past for the church to survive and let alone to thrive. And the churches that do that will be the ones who, who have a single focus on being the kind of place that makes room for the growth of the kingdom in the presence of Jesus. And to whatever extent a church can do that, then it has nothing to worry about. I, I don't know that that church, I mean, yes, there are places where the population dries up around you. and That, that happens. Happens in our part of the world a significant number of times, I suppose. But I just think the church that commits itself to be the church doesn't have to worry too much about this. Because to be honest, it's more worried about where are we going? What are we doing? How do we encourage each other? How do we grow? How do we serve? And if we keep those questions at the center, if people who have the conversations with us hear Jesus and others more than they hear us and ours, I, I don't think that church has a lot to fear. Um, kind of want to put a <clears throat> put a pause here, take some thoughts, some comments, questions. I want to also tell you, next week, um, in some ways, we hope, well, in, in some ways, both the most and least practical. Um, next week, we want to offer some thoughts and hear some thoughts on what the church of tomorrow might look like, how we think the church has changed, how we think the church might need to change in this new thing. In other words, in a new landscape, what are some of the directions that the church might be called to explore? Um, but we want to save that to kind of end with. I think what's interesting about that, as he describes it in the book, I, I think, I, I don't, Michael and I may disagree with it. I don't think it's a great book. I think it's a great story, and I like the way he uses it. The rest of the book, I thought was just okay. But um, they did have a moment where they have to decide, right? Because first of all, they thought they'd be there, but they'd gone way farther than they thought they were going to go, and it turns out they were only two-thirds of the way. They didn't know that yet. And second of all, they didn't expect mountains, and they thought if they ran into them, they'd be like the ones they knew from back east, which were this, not this. And, um, and so they did have they did have a decision to make, and they literally made it. They sat down, you know, they, they got everybody's input, and they made a conscious choice to stay the path. And uh, I think those are good words, to, to fulfill or try to fulfill their mission, not sure what that would mean. Uh, I think, you know, a couple sessions ago we talked about um, some of the guidance of the church to, to be a witness, to do evangelism, to worship, to serve. Um, we have a tool in our, our book of order. It's called the six great ends of the church. I think those guide our mission. I, I think 
being Jesus people is the fundamental part of our mission, then we could talk about our tradition and being guided by Presbyterian and such. But I, I think to, I mean, as Jan said in our children's, love God, love self, love neighbor, it is a pretty good summary. I mean, that, obviously there's a lot of wiggle room in there, but I think that's, that's not a bad compass heading to, to follow. Michael, anything to At the risk of oversimplifying, I think my direct response to that is the church is a place that's called to confront us with the reality of the gospel, which if heard has the ability to transform our life, which if happens then sends us into the world to replicate that process somewhere else. Meh. That's fine. I Try to say that again. <laughs> you should write that down. We we miss it because far too often we think that the conversion is supposed to be for someone else. And that temptation in the church only grows as we've been in it longer. Is we like to think that we've heard it, and so we know. And and the church becomes calcified. Not because of our ill will or because we're bad people. It's because at our best, I think we think that it's something for someone else. And if we're confronted by the gospel, if we're confronted by the Jesus of the scriptures, if we're confronted by the reality of the kingdom of God, then we learn that he's Lord and we're not. And that every time that we are once again reminded of that, that we're called to humble ourselves to learn to be renewed, transformed. And it is so easy to decide that this is where my faith is, that this is how much I love my neighbor, this is how much I, I, I know who God is. And I'm sad to say that in 20 years, that won't be enough when the, the conversation about faith deconstruction happens, as if someday you'll wake up and learn something and then it's all over. Like, like there's one thing and the foundation's blown out and... and we should be wrestling with that all the time, right? I, I mean, we should have real fundamental questions come across our desk more than once a year. And as congregations, we are tempted to, to get on autopilot and to say, well, let's, let's see if air traffic control, let's move over here so we don't hit the bumpy stuff. But, but the reality is, I, I, I think, the mission of the church is to be a place, and by place I mean people, gathered people, who invite Jesus to show up. And my reading of the gospel is, when Jesus showed up, he brought unsavory characters, and the people who everybody wanted first in the room tended to be the ones most vocally in opposition to his presence. That happens in church. And that's what makes a healthy church is the fact that all of that's happening in this, in this beautiful organic mixture. And that is a witness. Uh, it's compelling. When people and you say, you're like, how are they talking to each other? How are they learning from each other? That doesn't happen outside the walls of the church often. And it should happen inside the walls of the, of the church, capital C, more often than it does. And, that's not to pretend like we're a group of people who figured it out. We all know that there's a lot of room for us to grow in that. But I'll tell you this, starting to talk about it is not unimportant. Admitting the reality that this is what a congregation is called to do and who we're called to be in relationship with one another, 
that is at least the first step towards us being open to the Spirit of God working that in our midst. I think I'd add maybe two things as follow-up. Um, <laughs> so now it's confession time. Uh, I, I was this is pr uh, probably 95%, maybe a little higher, of the reason I was at the Presbyterian meeting is because they asked me to preach, so I had to go. Um, and I preached a passage from Joshua, and you may know it, the, the people cross into the promised land, and God tells Joshua they, they go through a parted river. A river dries up, so it's sort of like crossing the Red Sea again. It's a reenactment. But on the way, um, God tells them, send a man from each tribe in to get a stone, and then pile the stones up. And there's this wonderful line in Joshua. It says, so when your children ask you in a time to come, what do the stones mean? You will tell them that the water was cut off when the Lord delivered you from Egypt. And I think that the challenge for the church is that we always live in the middle of the now and the future, the then. Part of what you all are doing now as the church is building the thing that your children and grandchildren will inherit. And they'll, and they'll ask us, well, why, what does it mean? Why do you go eat soup on Sunday nights? Why do you go get up on Sunday mornings? Why do you do that stuff? Why is that place there? Why is there a cross on top? Right? And... If, if we don't do that, if the church isn't always concerned with, of course, being the best it can in the present, but being what it can be in the future when we may not even be there, then, then we're missing out on something. And the, the second part of that, I think the, a really interesting maybe carryover, um, if you were in first service this morning, you not only heard me read the wrong scripture, but you, uh, <laughs> sorry about that, by the way. We had uh, a baptism, and the baptism starts with the Great Commission, uh, go into all the world and preach and teach and baptize. In, in the Greek, Greek and English, um, they get along pretty well, but we have, we translate that word go in Matthew or in the Great Commission as an imperative. In other words, go, that's an order. But in the Greek, it's an imperative that is also an ongoing imperative. So the, the best translation is probably as you are going or even along the way would be, I think, an acceptable version of it. And we have thought of missionaries in the church as the people who went. We sent them. We need to learn to think of missionaries as the people who are along their way so that we are all one of them. So that every Christian considers themselves a witness, a missionary. And along the way, we're preaching and teaching and sharing and doing those things. That, that's not reserved for people who go far off. It, it's, it is a calling for all of us. And so I, I think that one of, one of the, the strategies in regard to our mission will be to reinterpret the idea of go to the reality of as we're going. And, and I think that will be a helpful 
I, for me at least, that that is a helpful thing to know. It, it sort of reforms the idea that, oh, that calling isn't just for some special people. It's for everyone. And I think that matters. Yeah, for, the, for the longest time, we have been blessed in, the, in America because of our freedoms to think that, that our going with the faith is, is completely consonant with what we do in our life. And a, a professor really helped me here. Uh, I did not know this until I was taught it, that um, in, the, in the first century, I, I don't know if you knew this, but, but many of the different trades were, they shared the same idol or God. So the, the meat trade had its own deity. And if you were going to become a meat seller in the market, if you were going to be part of that cohort, part of that economic industry, you would have to swear allegiance to the meat seller's God. Are you with me? So the reason this is relevant to the early churches, they had to ask themselves the question, can I be a meat seller? Can I work in that industry if to become a certified individual, I have to swear allegiance to a God other than the one true God. And this should bring to mind a whole bunch of conversations from the book of Corinthians, because there's a whole bunch of other God stuff happening in that book, and that is the backdrop to those conversations. So I doubt anyone in this room wondered, can I be an insurance agent and a Christian at the same time? We, that's not in our native language because of some of the freedoms that we've had. But every Christian knew they were a witness because doing one thing likely meant you couldn't do another. And so in a world in which we increasingly feel like those margins are changing, that might help us find our place. That there, there may be some moments in which you encounter a pushback that you didn't expect that help firm your faith and a line that you didn't know was there. That, that maybe that, maybe mammon or money or prestige or title or position, maybe that has been a God and I didn't realize it. And that's an opportunity for us, I think, to see the work of Jesus Christ as Lord working within us. But that requires the humility to confront that. And it requires the courage of the church to say that there might be stuff that we find along the way that we would prefer not to find. That's my cardinal rule of cleaning my house, is I find stuff I would rather not have been there because I realize how much I spent on it and never used it, or I convinced my wife we needed it, and it turns out she was right, and we didn't. Uh, you know, like, the, the church has that, but it's not funny. The church has that, and there's stuff that, that we might legitimately, and we will, I won't say might, we will legitimately be ashamed what is in the closet. And, and that's been that way, by the way, for hundreds and thousands of years. If you know your church history, we have those things. But the courageous church stands before the redeeming Savior and says, by your grace alone are we saved. And that is enough, not our merit. That's us taking seriously what we've said all along. And and I think it goes back to, to your question, that, that fundamentally, if we're driven by the mission of looking like we all have it together, the church is in for a rough straight. If the mission is to be the people of God who live in the way of Jesus, we have a bright future because it is he 
who will show up and, and is showing up he, in, in the present uh, continuing sense. So let me kind of finish with a story that I think maybe ties some of that together. Uh, and this is partly biographical, and then it's some other things stitched together. So part of this story is true, and part of it is a reflection of other stories that are also true, but not the same story. And I'll tell you where it switches to make sure I don't mislead you. I had a friend, um, Texas. Asked if he'd come talk to me. Went to a church, but not the church I served. Lived the next town down. We, we hunted together. We biked together. Did some stuff together. Good guy. Comes to me. He says, Clint, I, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I think I need to get a new job. So, yeah, what's going on? He's, he's a salesman. Sold, uh, sold uh, like industrial metal. Sold steel and stuff to companies. He said, well, um, most of my clients... When I, when I go sell, they want to go to the strip club. They want me to take them out. They want to go have lunch, go to the strip club. I told my boss I don't want to do it. He said, you do what the client wants. That's where the client wants to go. That's where you go. So he said, I've, I find myself with this choice of needing to, having to do things I know are, are wrong in order to do my job or taking the risk of getting a new job. So and, and he did. He, he got a new job. Now, I want to share similar stories. And I, this is partly his story, but not exactly because this is more, this is sort of a conglomeration of other stories. There have been moments like that where people have had to make that decision and their church gets involved. And their church says, look, we got you. We're going to bring you food. We're going to take over some babysitting. We're going to help you get through this till you find a new job because we know that's not what Jesus wants for you, right? So the community of faith supports one of their own who says, my faith won't allow me to be faithful in this situation. The world says this, and my faith says this, and I got to go with my faith. And the church says, how can we help? And, And that's our way forward, friends. I mean, that that is what it looks like to be the church. Now, that has... It's informed by, but that has nothing to do with the name on your sign and the shape of your sanctuary and the kind of liturgy you do. Those things are all great, but that's the church being the church. To say to one of its own, as you're following Jesus, how can we help? And we don't want your family to suffer because you're making a faithful choice. We've got you. And those are the kind of things that happen, I think, when the church has Jesus at the center. And um, I, don't, I don't worry too much about those churches. I mean, you know, churches, you can go off the rail at any point. But I, I think those places are going to be the ones that ultimately do all right. And uh, again, I, I, I don't want this to sound like um, a flogging because... I, I can't tell you how grateful Michael and I both are. We we have this conversation regularly to to be in a place where I don't feel like I'm trying to canoe through a field of rocks <laughs> very often. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. So um, next week, like I said, we're going to talk. I, I think in some ways next week will be um, interesting, be practical, because it will be uh, a lot of guesses, and maybe it won't be practical. It'll be a lot of guesses about what the church of tomorrow may look like, 
um, and what church may look like in a new place. So uh, thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, thanks for your patience and your time. And uh, we'll, we'll finish up next Sunday, Palm Sunday already. So thanks. Thank you.